This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. This is Mental Health Moments, the podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers and sharing your stories. Brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region and hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe. This podcast is designed to shed light on mental health as a whole and really delve into the different aspects of it, the different iterations of it, what it means to different people. And before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know that Discovery, the uh, the wonderful program that hosts this podcast, is on all major podcast platforms. It's on Apple, Google, Spotify, Audible, really wherever you get your podcasts, this show is accessible. Now getting into it, there are so many factors that impact our mental health, both individually and as a community. One of those factors is the workplace, which is why it's more important than ever that workplaces create services and support for their staff to deal with mental health. Joining me today to talk about mental health in the workplace and shed light on the way forward is Michael Timms, an author of How Leaders Can Inspire Accountability and an award-winning leadership development consultant. Thank you for being here today, Michael. Thanks a lot, Phil, for having me. Glad to be here. So before we get into this, what exactly is a leadership consultant? I, I think I've, I've stopped using that. And I just, I just tell people the same thing that I tell my kids, which is I help leaders become better leaders. It's really what I do. Okay. And um, the, the connection that started a conversation between you and I was a press release that talked about uh, mental health services in the workplace and how you kind of guide people to to help with these different things. One point that stood out to me was um, you had a point on it that said how to provide feedback that's helpful, not hurtful. Can you expand on that? How do we provide feedback, uh, let's say, in uh, for something that's gone wrong or something negative and, and not have it come across as hurtful? Yeah, well, you know, as it relates to the workplace, um, uh, I recently saw a statistic that the vast majority of people's stress in the workplace comes from the relationship that they have with their direct manager. And uh, receiving feedback is oftentimes, and actually even providing feedback oftentimes, is one of the most uh, stressful uh, stressful situations that you, you can be in uh, in the workplace. And so really, I help, uh, I help leaders become better leaders so that they can make the workplace a lot more welcoming make sure that, uh, that their employees feel well, uh, feel safe uh, in their workplace, both obviously physically, but, uh, but uh, emotionally as well. When we get into to feedback, like I said, it is one of the most um, challenging uh, situations in the workplace, one of the most stressful uh, uh, places in the workplace um, or times in the workplace is, um, uh, and the way that we can alleviate that is to make sure that we are giving and receiving feedback better. And to make, to make it so that it's not such a painful experience for both the giver and the receiver of feedback. And the reason why this is really timely right now is because a lot of people are, are uh, you know, employees nowadays have tons of options about, you know, where they can go. Um, they can get another job if, if their uh, current employer isn't, if it's not working for them. And so something for, for people in management positions to know is that when they give feedback poorly, or rather when it's received poorly, when, the, when that situation doesn't go well, it prompts about four out of five people to want to look for a new job. So this is, this is a high stakes uh, situation when you're, when you're giving or receiving feedback. But one of the very first things that I tell leaders about, you know, how do you, how do you become a better leader? Well, the very first way I think to become a better leader is to ask for feedback more often. 
and to simply ask people, hey, how am I doing? Um, and, and not just say, in, not just keep it general, but to say, hey, how am I doing um, in, for example, the way that I provide feedback or the way that we have you know, feedback conversations? How am I doing in the way that I chair meetings? Um, and how am I doing in the way that, that I communicate? And, to, and, to, and not only to get feedback to help them be a better leader, but to also create a safe place that people know that, that fe we, feedback is welcome. And to, and to really teach that lesson to employees that, hey, feedback is helpful. Um, your boss wants feedback. Maybe you should want feedback too uh, to help us all perform better. So I would say that's probably one of the most important things leaders can do, A, to become a better leader, B, to create a safe environment, and C, to also you know, uh, teach, uh, teach employees that feedback is a good thing. But when it comes to providing feedback, there's a lot of bad advice out there about providing feedback. You know, a lot of people say, oh, start with the start with I statements, use a lot of I statements. You know, there's the old uh, feedback, we'll, we'll call it the feedback crap sandwich, uh, which is where you start off with something nice, then you slide in that, that digging feedback and then, you, and then you sandwich it with something else nice and everybody sees through that and that's just ridiculous. But the research is pretty clear on, on really the best way to provide feedback is not to pr pr uh, prepare a monologue. And that's where most people go wrong. Okay, I've got this feedback conversation. I want to give somebody some feedback. I want to get it off my chest and I'm just going to give it to them and then run. Uh, that is the wrong way to do it. And that's why feedback ends up uh, hurting, hurting uh, relationships and creating bad uh, workplace environment. The way to provide feedback is to look at it as a conversation and recognize I don't, I probably don't have all of the facts here. I have my own perspective and my perspective is valuable but I don't have a monopoly on the truth. And this person that I'm providing the feedback to, maybe they've got some insights that, can, that they can share with me, something that I don't know about that's gonna change the situation. And so the best way to provide feedback is to go into it and say, I'm not going to give you feedback, I'm going to have a feedback conversation and just say, hey, look, something's not working for me, how's it working for you? Let's find a solution here. And so the way to start that off is to ask questions and say, hey, um, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, here's the question, you know, or tell me, uh, how is this working for you? Okay. They tell me how this is working for them. And they say, you know what, from my perspective, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm seeing. You, you share what you wanted to share and say, Hey, look, this is, this is what I'm seeing. This is how it's impacting me. Um, but then you say, am I, am I missing anything? You know, it is, is that accurate? I'm just testing this perspective. You, what do you think about that? And you're putting it back in their court. And then that's how you start a dialogue and say, hey, look, um, let's come to, let's put all the facts on the table and let's figure out a solution to, um, to obviously if you're, you're, if you're providing feedback, it's because it's not working, something's not working well for you. And that's really the way to have a feedback conversation. Don't prepare a monologue, expect to learn something new um, and expect to work through that, that conversation. Providing feedback doesn't necessarily have to, all feedback goes in one direction. You know, if it's reciprocal, then it creates a, a much nicer environment to, to be working from. Yeah, for sure. And as, as a matter of fact, another thing that I didn't mention is that, um, you know, the feedback, we should be providing far more positive feedback than negative and, you know, than, than having those, those difficult conversations. Um, because uh, when you're providing a lot of positive feedback, you're communicating to people, hey, I respect you. Um, and, uh, and that's what people need to know before they are going to be receptive to any critical feedback or any improvement feedback that you might have for them. And so you're right, uh, Phil, it, is, it should be a reciprocal 
uh, continuous um, uh, you know, dialogue between people and people should not be afraid of feedback the way they, they are. But, but I will say that managers really set the tone as far as should people be afraid of your feedback or not? No, and, you know, as you were saying that, I, I think about um, my career so far, I'm only a couple of years into working in radio, but, you know, I, I've got my own insecurities that um, for some reason I, I borderline crave validation. And ironically enough, the way you answer this may validate my feelings, but is there any merit to validating your employees and giving them like an attaboy, girl? even for silly mundane tasks, or do we have to reserve this for when we accomplish something big? No, I'm really glad you asked that question because I, I have worked with a lot of managers who are like, well, why should, I, why should I praise somebody for simply doing their job? Um, well, I'll tell you why you should praise somebody for simply doing their job. It's one golden rule and that it's this, behavior that gets praised gets repeated. If you see something that you like, and you want to see that continue, you'd better make sure and praise people for that. And the reason for that is actually, I'll share kind of what's going on inside of the brain, is that when we are praised, our brain releases dopamine, which is a feel-good chemical, um, and it's also actually addictive. We want more of it. And in fact, what we're willing to do to, do, to get more of that chemical is to repeat the behavior that got that dopamine hit in the first place. All of us are naturally addicted to dopamine. When we praise people, it releases dopamine and it encourages people to continue doing that behavior. I remember one time I actually, <laughs> by accident, I, so I, I was with uh, my hiking buddy and we were hiking. I'm usually the stronger of the two uh, hikers. One day I was having a tough day and, uh, you know, and he was being encouraging and, and, uh, and saying, hey, you know what? It's not too much further, we can, we can get there. And then at a break, I just said, you know what? I really appreciate, you know, you giving me some praise here and, and, and giving me some motivation to keep going. I, I really appreciate that. Well, I just gave him a dopamine hit and he wanted more of it. And so I just created a monster. And so he was just like, you can do it. Go, go, go. You're you know, the rest of the day. He was just my constant cheerleader. But you, do, you watch when you praise somebody for doing something, odds are you will get that same behavior again. And that's why we as managers people in leadership positions, or, you know, when I say leadership positions, parents, um, anybody, colleagues, coworkers, you, and, you know, you don't have to be in a leadership position to do this, but if you want to see behavior uh, repeated, praise it, and you you just watch. Uh, it'll It's mar uh, far more likely that it's going to be repeated if you, if you praise it. Okay, and we're going to shift gears a little bit because I wanted to talk about this next point. Uh, how kindness and accountability lead to the most engaged in successful work cultures? Explain that to me. How how can we integrate kindness and accountability into what's happening in the workplace? I recently published How Leaders Can Inspire Accountability shares three extremely powerful habits that um, when, we, when we do these things, um, not only does it make us a better leader, but it also encourages those around us to take more accountability, more ownership for their work. And these behaviors are really simple to understand. First habit is simply don't blame. When things go wrong, we're all, most of us are naturally wired to, to blame the person closest to the mess, okay? Um, but when we blame people for problems, we're killing accountability in them. Nobody is gonna take accountability for ownership or for, for results if they think that they're gonna be blamed for doing so. 
Habit number two of personal accountability is to look in the mirror and say, you know what, is there, did I contribute to this problem in any way? And then habit number three is to engineer the solution, which means focus on fixing processes, not people. And, uh, and when you follow those three habits, it's amazing positive things happen. Not only do you become, not only will you get better results uh, as a leader, not only will be, you become, be seen as a better leader, but those around you will be more willing to take ownership. Um, I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, my uh, assistants and I discovered at one point that one of our um, templates uh, was, uh, had, had been deleted, accidentally deleted. And it wasn't my assistant, it wasn't myself. There was only one person in our, uh, other person in our company, and it was my assistant's assistant. Um, and so um, we'll, call her, uh, we'll call her Mel. When we discovered that this happened, I remember my assistant was like, she's like, I'm going to murder Mel. You know? <laughs> she was really upset. But I said, hold on, let's hang tight. Let's just follow the three steps of, of personal accountability. So let's just take a breather. Let's not blame. Uh, that's not helping. That's not helping us. It's, it's not going to help Mel. Did we do anything to contribute to this problem? And as soon as we asked that, that question, we both realized, you know what? Um, at, at one time or another, we had both almost accidentally deleted one of these templates uh, that we use. And so now we go to step three, which is engineer the solution. And when we looked in the mirror and we said, you know, we discovered how we were contributing to that problem, uh, the solution became clear. There's a real simple solution to end, real simple way to engineer the solution is simply create a, a folder called templates and put all of the templates in the folder and keep it separate from our work and process. And so we did that. And which means that there is no way that either my assistant, myself or Mel uh, could accidentally delete one of the templates in the future. Well, no, Michael, I got to say, as you were going through that, a lot of that hit home for myself because I, I've been on both sides of, of that uh, scenario. I've been the person that's made that mistake and I've been the person trying to correct problems and what have you. So that that hit home for me. Hopefully it hit home for some of our listeners. Uh, we're, we've run out of time for today, but I wanted to give you a chance. If people want to learn more about you, your book, the the services you offer, where can they go? How can they get that information? Uh, Google Michael Timms. My last name is T-I-M-M-S. Um, and, uh, and you can look up the book, how leaders can inspire accountability. It's sold on Amazon, um, uh, iTunes, anywhere that you, uh, buy your digital book books. It's also, of course, you can order it in paperback form as, as well. Okay. Michael Timms, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute treat. Okay. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Hey there, it's me, Phil McCabe again. You're almost done with me. I promise. Since I started this show, I had advocated for being open and communicative about how you were feeling, and as I've done in the past, I'm hoping to lead by example and speak from the heart. Where am I going with this, you ask? Well, if I'm being honest, and if I'm being open and communicative, this show almost ended between my last episode and this one. There was nothing bureaucratic about it, no, no. The reason it almost ended was because I was reaching a point where doing it was causing me stress for what felt like no return. A couple likes on Facebook and my fiancé sharing a post was validating at first, but that feeling has since faded. But here I am, doing this and telling my story in hopes that one of you out there listening right now will relate to what I am saying. Even if there's only one person that listens and feels better by hearing that they are not the only person feeling the things that they are feeling, then I've done something good. Like I said just a little bit ago, I want to be open. 
I'm glad that A, I decided to do the show again, and B, that I didn't do the show while I was in the headspace that I was in just a couple weeks ago. You know, life has a way of presenting you with external influences on your mental health. In my case, there was what felt like a never-ending string of things dragging me down. Obviously, the common denominator there is me, and in hindsight, these things were likely not as much of a drag as I allowed them to be. As much as I want to be open, I would also like to keep the most intimate parts of my life from the public eye. But what I will tell you is that my fiancé and I are in the process of moving out of our apartment that has caused us both a great deal of stress and anxiety to the point that we've alternated losing sleep. I will also tell you that a couple weeks ago, I bawled my eyes out. The actual reason for bawling my eyes out escapes me, but what led to it was a lot of stress and anxiety, and what felt like the worst and longest day of my life. It was a day that I woke up in a terrible mood, and all day long I was presented with scenarios that felt like the universe was intentionally hitting me with little pebbles of annoyance. Nothing so bad that it hurt, but over time annoyance became downright rage. After a long day of being hit with metaphorical rocks, I got so wound up that I was lashing out at the people around me, and for whatever reason, I blurted out the statement, I just want to be happy, and I lost it. I wept on my fiancé's shoulder for what felt like hours. It was more than likely just minutes, but you, you get the point here. Am I proud of that? No, not really. But what I am proud of is that... This was a scenario that I can see now was a, a learning opportunity and a chance to grow and and look internally as to why I had that moment, why I had that breakdown. What I mean is that this situation was embarrassing, as I said, and it led me to look internally and realize that life will throw things at you and it is okay to not be okay, as cliche as that sounds. That's all the time I have for you today, but like I said off the top of this segment, I advocate for openness with your journeys. Keep talking, and people will listen. We will get through this, and until next time, you are loved. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. Modern medical practice enlists the aid of vaccines, medicines, and drugs. The science of preparing and dispensing these medicines and drugs is called pharmacy. And the key figure in this profession is the highly trained registered pharmacist. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the very first episode of Pharmacast with Pindi, your prescription for the latest info in pharmacy. On this series, we'll be tackling the evolving role of community pharmacists and the opportunity that comes with that evolution. I'm Pindi Janda, a pharmacist, an advocate, and the Director of Procurement at Imperial Distributors Canada, Inc., and I'll be your host. The World Health Organization has officially called it the coronavirus, COVID-19. It's no secret that the pandemic has had a seismic impact on our lives and the way that we seek healthcare advice. Local pharmacies seized the opportunity, stepped up to the plate and to date administered a record number of vaccinations to the Canadian public. We were also in the front lines dispensing and conducting massive numbers of COVID-19 tests. 
But how exactly has this virus shifted the average Canadian's perception of community pharmacists and the role that they play in healthcare? You know, we got direct distribution of vaccines, which we had been fighting for for a decade. Helping me unpack all of this is Geraldine Vance, CEO of the BC Pharmacy Association. For those of you who may not be aware, Geraldine started out her career as a journalist and later worked in not one, but two premier offices in Saskatchewan and BC. From there, she made the leap over to healthcare, working 10 years in advocacy and government affairs for the BC Medical Association, and now in her current role as our leader at the BC Pharmacy Association. Welcome, Geraldine. I appreciate you making the time. So let's just dive right into it. I don't think we can talk about pharmacists without bringing up COVID. It was a game changer. Six months ago, none of us could have imagined how our world would be thrown into turmoil by this new virus. So what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about how COVID impacted community pharmacists and what our role was? I think first and foremost, it's hard not to be exceedingly proud of pharmacists. We were in lockdown. They're an essential service. You went into your pharmacy. They were hanging shower curtains and plexiglass. They made it work. And so first off the top, I think about great sense of pride and a demonstration of commitment by the profession. I also think about the huge opportunity for pharmacists to show what they do to many more people, to be that resource that they have always been, but that people have sometimes not seen. So that actually takes me to the next point that I was hoping we could reflect on was how do you think that we showed our worth and we stepped up? to the opportunity? I think that it was a great struggle for patients out of the gate. They didn't know what was happening. None of us knew what was happening from one minute to the next. And suddenly patients who had depended on going into the doctor's office, having a conversation at the very time in which they would have wanted that to happen, it couldn't happen. Doctors were at home too. And so where did they go? Many, many, many of them went to their pharmacist, you know, their port of call, the place that they go, but suddenly they had many more questions and they were looking for reassurance and they got that from the pharmacist in a way that they might not have seen in the past. Pharmacies will be part of this shift in the months ahead. The pharmacists are at the ready. Pharmacists say they are ready to put shots in the arms of Canadians. For those of you who are listening and may not know, I also work with Geraldine since I'm on the board of the association. And that call came in at the end of March and they came straight to you, Geraldine, and said, help us. We need to now talk to pharmacists. Absolutely. The campaign for vaccines came out of the blue, sort of like everything with COVID. One day it's this and the next day it's something entirely different. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, suddenly there was 18,000 shots that were time dated Time is ticking, with the shipment of doses set to expire at the end of the month. Five days later, those shots would not have been used, would not have gone to benefit. And so we got a call from government saying, can you make it happen? Can you put these shots in arms? And I went to our board, including Pindi, and said, there is only one answer. Yes. Absolutely correct. There was only one answer, and it was our chance. Huge chance, huge chance. And again, pharmacists stepped up, and they've been there providing information and reassurance, and the boosters. And if there's a fourth dose, it will be from pharmacists. So people who may not have had an encounter in the past with their pharmacist, 
now have gotten to know them, have gotten to know the expertise that is there. And as importantly, government has said, these are people we can depend on. When we have a problem, we go to them, they say they'll solve the problem, and we did. And I think that's the message that came out. I didn't know pharmacists did that. So I think that's, it's given us a profile. Absolutely. Was your family doctor there for you during the pandemic? Could you see your family doctor? No. People, I think, feel really let down by their family dogs, but pleasantly surprised by their pharmacist and their naturopath. Naturopaths filled a big, big void doing pap smears and all kinds of stuff that doctors wouldn't show up to do. And pharmacists being that resource for people in kind of one-on-one counseling stuff that they would normally go to their physician for. And so as we in pharmacy ask for prescribing rights, et cetera, et cetera, the public will in terms of preference for pharmacy has changed entirely. Canadian pharmacies are able to administer millions of COVID-19 shots a week. The silver lining during this pandemic, if one can say this, is that community pharmacists have improved their standing in the public's eye. A recent poll showed that 30% of Canadians interacted with their pharmacist more since COVID-19. And three in four believed we played a larger role in providing health-related services. When asked, 93% of Canadians now say they would be happy to have their pharmacist as their first point of contact in the primary care system. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a profound number. 93%. Yeah. didn't say doctor, they said pharmacist. It was great how you brought everybody together and you brought in so many different players to this. You brought in the wholesalers and yes, that's my day job. But even bringing in the different pharmacists, if it was chain or it was independent and we all just came together. And that's not a cliche when it came to this profession. We all stepped up and came together. Absolutely. I said, this is a public health emergency and everybody needs to be part of that. Every pharmacy, big pharmacy, small pharmacy, this is about including and ensuring equal access, which is essential to a public health care system. And certainly our Minister of Health absolutely wanted that to happen, and as did Dr. Bonnie Henry. And so we've been able to deliver that all across the province. We have the infrastructure and resources to quickly mobilize, and I am absolutely confident that every dose is going to get into an arm. Well, thank you so much. Pindi, it's been great. It's been phenomenal. We've made this the PharmaCast, and it's short and sweet like me most of the time. (laughs) Is there something that you would like to share with our pharmacist listeners? That's the audience. I think that you need to show up when somebody needs you. It's not about showing up when it's convenient or it's good for you. It's about showing up when the public needs you. And we did that, and that is reputational money in the bank because our legislators know that they can count on us and our patients know that they can count on us. And that won't change. And that's important as pharmacists look at what else can they do? How else can they show up? Yes. Thank you so much, Geraldine. And on behalf of us community pharmacists, I really, really do thank you for all of your work. My pleasure and honor. Thank you very much, Pindi. I hope you all enjoyed listening to today's episode of the PharmaCast with Pindi. I like to end each episode with a pearl of wisdom, something I call Pindi's practice pearl. Today's pearl, seize your scope of practice, move forward, embrace it, and champion being part of the healthcare system in Canada. PharmaCast with Pindi is produced by Everything Podcasts. Subscribe anywhere you discover your favorite podcasts. Thank you. 
Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.